Well, in the summer before my senior year of college, I worked at Bell Office Supply in Salem Springs, Arkansas. Uh, Bell Office Supply was run by a brother and sister. Their dad had started the company, I think in like maybe the 40s, 50s. I don't think it was the 60s. Maybe it was. But dad unexpectedly died. And I think he was in his 50s. And so this brother and sister in their late 20s decided, let's keep the business going. And so they took it over. Well, the brother, he was a little too entrepreneurial to just do office supply. And so he dabbled in a few other things, one of which was starting a candle company. He partnered with this guy named Dan. Dan had retired from his first career. And Dan had an office back in the back of this office supply company, this small business, and he would research wax uh, consistency and glass containers and different scents and what would make the best wick because their goal was to topple Yankee Candle. Now, I'll say this. Yankee Candle still exists, and I've never seen one of their candles in the store. So I suspect it didn't happen because this is like 20 years ago. But Dan was an interesting character. Uh, first were his very unique glasses. He, he, they looked like reading glasses, but flipped upside down because he was farsighted. He didn't need them to read. And so he had these little half spectacles that sat up high and he could look under and read his book and magazine or whatever, but then needed them to drive or to basically see you. They were so unique that he loved to tell the story, I think I heard it three times that summer, of how he ran into Governor Bill Clinton. Bill was the governor of Arkansas. The story's taking place in Arkansas. And Bill noticed Dan's glasses the first time they met. Well, they met probably two or three years later, and Bill says, hey, I remember you because I remember those glasses. And so Dan made these glasses kind of his trademark. Well, not only did Dan have unique glasses, he also had some unique theology or philosophy. For instance, I was a brand new married man, and he decided that he, the older gentleman, needed to mentor me on love. And so he explained to me how love worked. Love was like a quantity. And so when he got married, he gave 100% of his love to his wife. But when they had a child— he now had to split his love. And so his wife only got 50% and his child got 50%. And when they had another child, he now had to divide it in thirds and give one third of his love to each of his immediate family. Now, I can tell by the looks on your faces, you're thinking, okay, that was unique. Dan's a little off. But the thing is, I think all of us at times make the same mistake that Dan was making with love. Because sometimes we treat intangibles like love or like grace or truth as if they were tangible objects like cookies. That, that if we have a plate of cookies and we gave some away, we now have less for ourselves. That's how Dan seemed to be treating love. And so sometimes we don't give things away for fear that we will have less for us. But math in the emotional and spiritual realm is different than in the physical realm. Because when it comes to those intangibles, more often than not, the more you give it away, the more you actually have. We've been in this series on the values of Riverwood. So far, we've looked at grace, we've looked at truth, but today we're going to look at trust. And what we're going to discover is that when we actually entrust to others, whether it be ministry or the gospel or something else, when we entrust it to them, we don't lose power, we don't lose influence, we don't lose respect. 
that in God's economy, we actually gain. That when we entrust ministry to others, we actually see God gain more glory. In some way, somehow, something is multiplied to us. And so today, we're going to look at trust. And to do that, we're going to actually be in two different Bible passages. So if you brought a Bible or you've got a Bible app on your phone, open up first to the book of Acts. To the book of Acts. If you're not quite familiar where Acts is, I've got a little cheat sheet up on the screen for you. You can use that to help you find Acts. If you do not have a Bible on your phone, download one. There's some free versions out there. In fact, just go get the uh, Bible.com, the version app, uh, and it, it's completely free. Multiple translations. Download that. If you are like me, you want to go retro and you want a, a paper Bible, we've got two different translations on the table. I want everyone to have a Bible, all right? But to make it easy, we do have it on the screen. All right, so Acts chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 6 through 11 today. Acts 1, 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him. All right, so this is the disciples. They're with Jesus. And they said, so, so they, they'd come together. They asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Father, as we uh, dive into the scriptures right now, I pray that you would be our teacher today. As I try to paint the, the picture and draw us into your story, that you would do something in our hearts and in our minds. That, that what we hear today wouldn't just kind of make us happy for a little bit, and then we just go on living our life the way we want. That today you would draw us yet deeper in a relationship with Jesus. Everyone in this room is at a different place in their walk with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you do the impossible, that you would speak to each and every heart and mind that's here, that no matter where they're at in that spiritual journey, they would today take yet another step of trust in following you. And so, Father, do right now what only you can do. It's in Jesus' name I pray for this. Amen. What I want you to do right now is I want you to use your imagination. All right, I know, we're adults, that's the realm of kids, but I think you guys can do this, all right? What I want you to do is I want you to imagine you are back in the first century. You're an adult, you, you know, you're wearing your robe, you're working a job, and all of a sudden someone comes running into the village and they start saying that there's some itinerant preacher out in the wilderness and they said it's unlike anything you've ever heard. And so you're a little curious, and then they start telling you that He's a carpenter. And you're thinking, wait, 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 wait. I thought to be a rabbi, you like had to go through school and everything. How's a carpenter a rabbi? And then you say that he's from Nazareth. And you're thinking, wait, uh, no, nothing good comes from Nazareth. But this person insists, you've got to come hear this guy. So you do. You and several people from the village, you make your way out into the wilderness. And there you are, this hillside. And this guy standing at the top and he's preaching. And you sit down and you start listening and it's the most amazing thing you have ever heard. I mean, you're a good Jew. You go to the temple every single Sabbath. And yet, this guy teaches unlike the other rabbis. 
You've never heard anything this amazing. And you decide you want to follow this guy. That The way he preaches, the way, something about him, he has the keys to life. And you decide to abandon your job, to leave it behind, and you're now going to follow him. But not only do you hear him teach amazing things, you see him do amazing things. I mean, you were there when he spit in the dirt, made some mud and put it on the guy's eyes and said, all right, go wash yourself. And all of a sudden the word comes back. The guy who was blind could now see. And then you were there when Jesus is teaching in that house. And remember that? The, all the people are all crowded around. You couldn't get in. And four guys bring their buddy who was, who was lame. He couldn't walk. And they bring him on a mat and they climb up on the roof and they rip a hole in the roof and they lower their friend down. And Jesus chuckles and heals the guy. The guy stands up and carries his mat out. And the gasps and shock of everyone there. Oh, and then remember that one time? When the, the little girl died, you and Jesus and the guys showed up and all of a sudden everyone's weeping and crying because Jesus was too late. He couldn't get there in time to heal her. She passed away. But suddenly Jesus goes inside with James and John and Peter and everyone else is outside. And then a couple of minutes later, Jesus walks out and there's the little nine-year-old girl walking out with him alive. I mean, you saw so many things And so when you saw the amazing things he taught, I mean, heard the amazing things he taught and saw the amazing things he did, you're like, that's it. This this guy's phenomenal. I will follow him the rest of my life. And then the unthinkable happened. You were there when those soldiers started whipping him, shredding his back. You saw the crown of thorns jabbed onto his brow, making a mockery of him as a king and the blood running down. You saw him hanging naked on that cross. You couldn't believe it when you heard him yell out and breathe his last. And in that moment, your faith died. You remember, though, three days later, you're sitting in the room with everyone else. You've got the doors locked, you know, windows shut. You don't want anyone to find you because if they could take out your leader, what would they do to you? You're scared, you're afraid, you're heartbroken. And all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door. It's a bunch of women. They come back and they say the the tomb is empty. You're thinking someone's stolen the body, but they insist that, no, 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 Jesus is alive. And so you see Peter and John jump up and they take off running. And they they come back, you know, a half hour later. They're saying, it's right, the the tomb is empty. And you're thinking, who in the world would go and steal his body? And, And as all this is happening, all of a sudden, there's another knock at the door. And two guys show up. And they say they had just had been walking to the small town of Emmaus and someone else had joined them. And he started to explain to them why the Messiah must die but would rise again from the dead. And he's explaining it all from the Old Testament. And then suddenly he's revealed as Jesus and he disappears. The guys hoofed it all the way back to Jerusalem and they're huffing and they're puffing and they're telling you, he's alive, he's alive. We saw him, we were with him, he's alive. And in that moment, suddenly Jesus is in the room. He didn't walk through the door. He didn't jump through the window. He didn't descend through the ceiling. He was just there. And you touched the wounds. You could could touch his side. You saw him eat fish in your presence. This was not a ghost. He was alive. And now your heart is just bursting. You can't believe this. You are blown away. 
Because the Jewish leaders, they were jealous of him. They were threatened by him. And so the way to deal with it was to try and kill him. And it didn't work. They couldn't stop him. And the Romans, who loved power, they wanted to exert their authority. And so, hey, if they could take out the so-called king of the Jews, they would do it. And even they couldn't stop him, because here he is alive. And even death itself could not keep him down. He was able to take up his own life again. And so now you're thinking, the wisdom this guy has, the power this guy has, nothing can stop this guy. He is king. And you think it's time. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to establish the kingdom of Israel. This is it. You are so excited. And so 40 days later, Jesus is with you. He's been teaching you. He's been in and out of your midst. You guys are so excited. You can't wait. And he's like, all right, guys, come on. And so you guys go outside the city and you go kind of up on this mountaintop. And you're thinking, okay, this is it. This is it. This is the time where Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. But instead of saying, all right, here's how the plan's going to go, he suddenly says, now, guys, it's not for you to know when the kingdom will be established. Instead, right now, I'm going to take off, and I'm going to leave so that I can send my Holy Spirit to you. And when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to go do ministry. You're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, the ends of the earth, you're going to go, you're going to make disciples, you're going to baptize them in my name, you're, you're going to uh, you know, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. I'm leaving it to you. So go. I think if I had really been standing on that hill, I would be really confused. I think I'd be looking at Jesus going, wait a second. You know all things, you have all power, nothing can stop you. Why are you taking off? You're in the prime position. Why are you leaving it to me? Because I'm a bumbling idiot. I am not nearly as good of a teacher as you, Jesus. There's no way I could do all the things that you've done. I, I don't think I could cheat death. I, I don't get it. Why are you leaving? Because some way, somehow in the kingdom of God, in his economy, Jesus is more glorified when the ministry is left to us. And it isn't like he just said, all right, just do the best you can. No, he, he gives his Holy Spirit to us. He says, I will be with you. But somehow when he entrusts ministry to us, he gets more glory and we get the joy of watching him work through us and do what only he can do. This is his pattern. This is his method. This was the plan all along. I think that's why Paul does ministry the way he did. If we were to continue on in the book of Acts and get up there to Acts chapter 9, we would see this story of Paul having this radical conversion. He used to be known as Saul from Tarsus. He was a zealous Jew. He was well on track to becoming one of the most famous rabbis that Judaism had ever had. And he was so zealous for Judaism that he thought this whole, the way, this new Christianity, these Jews who proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, he thought they were ruining Judaism. So he was trying to arrest them. He's approving of their murders. In fact, he was willing to travel to other cities to go and arrest Jews who proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah so that he could squelch this movement before it could spread too far and ruin the, the religion more. And so he got letters to approving him going off to the city in Damascus. And on the way, all of a sudden, he meets Jesus. In a vision, Jesus appears to him on the road 
and proves to Paul it's true. Jesus was the Messiah. He really died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. He really did rise from the dead. And now Jesus is saying to Paul, instead of going to other cities to arrest people for following me, you're going to go to other cities and help people become followers of me. And sure enough, that's what happened. Paul began to grow in his faith, his understanding of the gospel. And he began to travel around. And he'd come into a city and he'd just start talking about Jesus. And he'd explain the gospel. And all of a sudden, as he would talk about Christ, some people would believe. And pretty soon, he's got these Jesus followers. And they start forming a church. And he'd start pastoring them. But Paul did not feel the call to go to a city to start a church and stay there the remainder of his life. He felt compelled. It was his calling to go all around the known world and preach about Jesus. And so he did, city after city after city. He'd come in, he'd preach the gospel, a church would form, he'd pastor for a while. And then he'd entrust the ministry to others as he went somewhere else. One of those cities was a town called Ephesus. It was a very strategic city, a very important city. Paul came there, shares the gospel. A number of people believe him. Church starts growing, thriving. He's pastoring it. Most scholars believe that that Paul was in Ephesus for about three years. But he couldn't stay. He had to go. And so because it was such an important city, such a key church, he ends up setting his own mentor. I mean, his his, his apprentice, his protege. Timothy. You learn about Timothy's story in the book of Acts. You see how Timothy was very well known to to the brothers, to believers in Christ. He had a a Greek father, but a Jewish mom. And yet there was something unique about him. And Paul saw the talent, saw the gift, saw the call that God had placed on him. So grabbed a hold of him and says, come along with me. And Timothy began to follow along and saw Paul in all of these cities, preaching the gospel, starting these churches, discipling people. So when it came time to leave elders, to leave someone to pastor in Ephesus. Who better than Timothy? Paul was willing to leave his best because he'd been investing in him and he entrusted the ministry to him. But Paul didn't just say, all right, here you go. Do the best you can and take off. He continued to write him letters, to continue to pastor and disciple Timothy to help him be the best pastor possible for the church in Ephesus. So we have at least two of those letters that were written and so let's turn to the second one. If you know where 2 Timothy is, 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is Paul as a mentor, as a coach, writing to Timothy saying, hey, let me remind you of some things. Let me encourage you in some things. And don't forget these essentials. And one of the essentials that he wanted Timothy to get is found in chapter 2, verse 2. 2 Timothy 2, 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see Paul saying, hey, the things you saw me do, the things you heard me teach, I've passed them on to you. So now you just go and do the same. Why would Paul say this? Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus tells his guys, you've heard the things I taught. You saw the things I did. So now go and be like me. Do likewise. And so Paul, who was called by Jesus on that road to Damascus, says, all right. And so he entrusts the ministry to Timothy. But notice, he doesn't just say, all right, Timothy, I give it to you. You got it from here. He tells him, you also have to entrust it to others. And notice, there's actually four generations there. The first generation would be Paul, right? The things that you heard from me. The second 
uh, generation would be Timothy. All right, so Paul's saying, the things that I said, I'm passing on to you, and I want you to entrust them to faithful men. There's your third generation. But then notice, the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The fourth generation. Paul had been in Ephesus for three years. Chances were he knew some of that third generation. So as he's writing to Timothy saying, entrust us to faithful men, it's likely, it's possible that Paul is still going, oh yeah, Bartholomew, he'd be a great elder. And oh yeah, James would have done a fantastic job. I'm not so sure about Bill over there. Right? But he probably had some guys in mind. But the gospel was flourishing so fast, there's no way Paul could have known everyone, especially down to that fourth generation. Paul, we don't know how long he'd been gone when he wrote this. There's no way that Paul would have known everyone that these guys could have entrusted it to. What this means, it's now outside of Paul's control. He is no longer have, has the reins. That's the key essence of trust. To truly trust means you have to let go. You can't continue to just hold on to it. I've seen a number of parents ruin their kids' lives because they couldn't trust their kids to go and do things. They tried to hold on to everything, control everything, and the kids never had the chances to really experiment and grow and learn through failure. To truly trust means you have to let go. Paul had to let go of the church in Ephesus to Timothy. And he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you're going to have to let go and entrust it to some faithful men, but you're going to have to teach them to also let go. Because you see, when you begin to let go, what you're really doing is putting your trust in God. You're, you're saying, all right, I'm not going to be in control because I believe that you, God, are in control. One of my best friends, his name is Leo. He pastors a church in the state of Washington, but he used to pastor a small country church in Michigan. And when he began as the pastor there, there were a number of people already in positions of leadership. They'd been doing ministry for a number of years. And there was one particular lady who was in charge of Sunday school. And so when Leo and his family began being a part of this church, they would do a Sunday school hour with the adults and the kids, and everyone kind of had their own Sunday school class. And then they would come together for their Sunday morning worship service. So Leo just did what he assumed he should do. He sent his kids to Sunday school. And after church, they'd be sitting around having lunch, and he'd say, hey, kids, how was Sunday school? Oh, it was boring. I hated it. It was no fun. Do I have to go? And week after week, the kids would be like, don't make me go. I don't want to go. And they'd whine and complain. They'd rather go to the adult Sunday school class than the kids' Sunday school class. And Leo's like, what is going on? So Leo's wife, Michelle, decides, you know what? I'm just going to volunteer to go in and help. Maybe it's just that there's too many kids and, and the, the gal leading it, she just needs a little extra help. Or maybe I can bring something fun to it or I'll just be a part of it. So Michelle goes and says, hey, could I come in and help? No. Why not? I got it. I, I got it. Turns out that the Sunday school lady was really the Sunday school czar. I, she was in control of everything and she refused any help. So anyone who offered to come in and serve with her, any ideas were immediately shut down because she was in control. In fact, the weeks she couldn't be there, she would just cancel Sunday school because she had to do it. You see, she mistakenly thought that in order for it to go right, in order for it to be done the way it needs to be done, she had to do it. And she couldn't let go and trust anyone with it because they might ruin it. But what was happening in her desire to try and help this thing to continue to survive, she was actually killing it. The kids didn't want to go. 
Families had stopped coming to the Sunday school hour. Some families even had left the church because this lady was making it an incredibly boring environment and kids were not enjoying learning about Jesus. Maybe the Sunday school lady had been hurt. Maybe there had been a time in her life where she had actually opened up. And when she began to trust, it was thrown back in her face. If you've ever dated someone, or even worse, your spouse has hurt your trust because they cheated on you, they left you for someone else, you went through that. It made you a little leery the next time. You weren't quite so sure that you wanted to trust again. There's a risk. When you open up your hands, you try to let go, there is a risk that it will come back to hurt you. And that's why I think I need to apologize to you. In this process of planting Riverwood, there have been a number of hurts, way more than I ever dreamed possible. If I had known ahead of time, I probably would have said no to God. Because I had to endure my own home church saying we will not support you financially. I was treated by some of the elders like I was a wolf trying to destroy their flock. And so they had to protect their flock from me. I got told that I was only worthy of a JV. I was told that I had no possible skill to plant and lead a church or cause it to grow. I've been even told that I didn't even have what it took to preach on Sundays. Now, I don't want to try, I'm not saying this to try and gain your sympathy. I don't want to paint the wrong picture. There have been amazing people that have spoken life to me. I'm married to one of them. I've got an awesome church planning coach. There are people that I have done ministry with who've spoken life into me and reminded me, Aaron, God has called you to this. You can do it. But I can't lie to you. I don't want to mislead you. Because it hasn't been all awesome roses. There have been a lot of thorns along the way. And I think some of that hurt has caused me to hold on a little bit. Because I know what I was called to. I know what God wants to do. And anytime I began to open it up and share the dream with others, they just snatched it from me and they tried to smash it or keep me from it. And so in my desire to fulfill what God has called me to, I just hung on. and like, let's go. And I've hung on because some of this I enjoy. I'm wired for this. I'm supposed to do this. It's fun. We all like to do things that are fun. And so I've hung on because I actually like some of this. But I've also hung on because some of this I don't enjoy. And if I don't enjoy that, why would I ever ask anyone else to do that? That's no fun. So I'm not going to make anyone else suffer. I'll just keep doing it so that no one else has to go through that pain. And I think I just held on because... I also don't want to open it up and have it hurt. But as I've been studying this week, I'm reminded if Jesus can entrust it to his disciples and entrust it to guys like me, and Paul could go and say to Timothy, I want you to entrust it to faithful men who will entrust it to others, then guess what we have to do as a church family? We have to live with trust. And it starts with me, and it extends to you. The first thing is that for us to begin this process of trust, it means we have to trust God. And it means we have to say yes to him. And so what it means is that for some of us, it means saying yes to beginning in ministry. 
It means saying yes to coming early to help with setting up. It means yes to saying, you know what? I'll greet at the door. I'll go help with kids. I'll do something. Because God has given me gifts. He's given me talents. He's given me energy. He's given me time. And I could be used to help others. And so I want to apologize if there's any area of Riverwood that has made it look like, hey, we've got this. Because you might have some talents and skills that God has put in you. And if we do not receive it, we are being robbed of it. But when you give of it, we gain and you gain. And so the first thing we need you to do is to say, God, I'll trust you. I'll trust that you can use me. And so if that means we end up with 12 keyboardists in our band, we will figure out a way to make it all happen. All right? If you've got the skill, the call, we want to help you engage. Because we want you to use what God has given you. It's part of your discipleship. It's part of going deeper. It's part of the gather, grow, give, and go. But then the second thing that we as a church family need to do is that when we begin to engage in ministry, it could be sound, it could be taking the shuttle to go pick up college students. I mean, it it could be leading a growth group, helping a kids ministry. It could be anything that as we do it, our eyes are outward and we start looking. Who could do this with me? Who could I begin to entrust this to? Because they too might have the skills and gifts and talents that God has embedded in them. I don't want any of us to become Sunday school czars who hold on tightly because that's not the way of Jesus. If we're going to be like Christ, if we're going to live like him, it means we live open-handed. Because to live open-handed means we ultimately are trusting God. And as we live with trust, as we live with faith, God does something in us. It isn't subtraction when we let go. It's multiplication. And I want to experience that, and I want you to experience that. And so, I want us to live with this culture of inviting, where we invite people in. You might invite someone, and they may say no. And that's fine. That's totally fine. But you might invite them, and they might say, you know what? Yeah, I'll jump involved. And as they get involved, it starts here, and it keeps going, and it keeps going, and it keeps going. And they're involved in areas of ministry. I know people who are now pastors because they were willing to be parking attendants out uh, in the, you know, for a large church. I, I know people who are now worship leaders because they were merely willing to start helping out back in tech. I I know people that are now in influential places because they were willing to say, God, I will trust that you can use me in this small thing. And as they faithfully served, someone else would see it and say, hey, would you come here? Hey, would you start to help here? And they began to be entrusted with more and more and more. And then they turn around and do the same thing. I see in you. Would you come and help me? Would you do this with me? And we all benefit. I have no idea what's going to happen next Sunday. I do know we will be at the Veterans Post. I do know that we will worship Jesus through song. I do know we're going to kick off the His Story series, but I have no idea exactly who's going to walk through those doors. It might be this group right here. It might just be our regular church family. We may send 6,000 flyers out. We may have it on our website. I did uh, uh, an ad for K-Way. I'm going to be interviewed on Friday. We might do all of that And God might do nothing with it. He's in charge. It's his church. 
And so he might say, yeah, you guys need to stay this way for a little while because I'm taking you deep. Because he's wanting to build within us this idea of trust. But maybe next week we start having a bunch of guests checking us out because God's spurring something in them. For them to come and be part of a healthy church, it means that we live with this trust of God. And part of that trust is exhibited when we entrust ministry to others. And so I'm going to just invite you. If there's an area of ministry at Riverwood, something that you see, and you're saying, you know what, I'd love to help out with that, then let us know. Write it on the connection card. Email me. Email Jeff. Let us know. There's no area that says, absolutely not. In fact, Jeff and I have even talked. We have the dream of seeing Riverwood plant another church someday. And hopefully not just one. I would love for us to do dozens but at least one. But in order for that to happen, it means we're going to have to invest in some people. And I'm excited at the idea of investing in some guy, of mentoring him, investing in him, saying, okay, look, if God can use me, he can use you. And see God raise them up and they step up here and they start preaching and teaching. They, they start leading in a growth group. They lead in some area of ministry. And two, three years from now, we get the joy of sending them out to go plant a church. Jeff shared how he would love to have someone come along that he could just raise up to be a worship leader. What that'll mean is he'll have to step back sometimes, let someone else up front, but that's not a loss. That's a win. It's multiplication. Because as we send a pastor off to go plant a church, it might be nice to have a worship pastor go with them. And we send them, and we get the joy of seeing God do what only he can do. But to have that happen, it means we have to entrust ministry to others. And so last year in January, I kind of did this State of the Church Address. That's when we handed out that annual report. And we said we wanted to have a theme of invite. And and so what we did was we we tried to uh, remind you through the the weekly news and notes email. We we tried to have little invite cards on a regular basis. We, We would regularly just remind you, hey, Invite some friends, invite some family. We just wanted to live with this culture of invitation. I, I tried to do a lot of inviting this past year. Even just simple things like inviting someone to growth group or, or to come serve with us. You know, the food bank. They don't even have to be part of Riverwood. Hey, come serve with me at the food bank. Just inviting. But I feel like this next year for Riverwood to continue to grow, not just numerically, but to grow spiritually, our theme needs to be trust. And I'm Speaking a lot to me, all right? You, you know the, th- the rule when you point your finger, there's three pointing back at you? Okay, right now, I'm preaching to Aaron Bird. We've got to live with trust. We've got to hand off the ministry. We've got to invest in others and see others rise up. The, this, this, the, the weight of this gets spread around and we get the joy of serving together because that's when I think God will do far more than we ever thought possible. And we'll even look at things like the new campaign and go, wow, that was cool. But this is phenomenal because it'll be people. So would you guys join with me? Would you guys value grace and lead with grace to all people who come through those doors? Would you guys value truth that we would lean on the truth of Jesus, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the scriptures, but that we would go forward with this culture of trust, entrusting ministry to others to say yes ourselves, Because as we trust God, we aren't losing, we're actually gaining. So Father, I just pray right now that you would do this 
for your glory. Father, I pray that you'd help me as the key visionary leader for this church family to live with my hands open and to entrust areas of ministry to others so that I can just give my time and attention to the the areas that you have specifically called me to. I pray that for our music team, our tech team, our setup team, for Kids Creek. I want to just say thank you, God, for the people that have already stepped up. They're, They're trusting you to use them to help us create an environment where people can hear about Jesus and have every opportunity to find him and follow him. But I thank you, too, for those in our church family. They're going to say yes today. Yes, saying yes to you to step up and say, I'll get involved. I'll serve. I'll help. Because they're realizing that you want them to trust you, that this is part of their spiritual growth, that as they serve others, as they serve their church family, you would do a great work in them as you do a great work through them. But then, Lord, I pray that you'd help us in all areas of ministry to live with this attitude of trusting you by entrusting ministry to others. That 2 Timothy 2.2 wouldn't just be some cool verse we have memorized, but rather it'd be a truth that we would live. And that we would see just reproduction happening in all levels of our church family. Because ultimately, what we're, when we shine the spotlight on someone else, we take it off of ourselves. We're ultimately God shining the spotlight on you. And that's where we want it firmly placed. So Father, help us to shine the spotlight on Jesus through our actions, through our words, as we invest in other people, letting them have the joy of doing ministry alongside of us. Because God, it isn't about us. It's about Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.